Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. Psalm 138, 7. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 174, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. You know, friends, my goal with every podcast is to help you be the parent you want to be. So I interview child and adolescent experts all around the world to help you understand your kids and why they do what they do. You know, sometimes in life, the odds seem really stacked against us, and it may feel like those odds are impossible to overcome, but I have a story for you that you are going to want to hear. My guest today is Jessica Buchanan, who is an aid worker in Somalia and was kidnapped by Somaliland pirates, and today she's going to tell us her harrowing story. So let's get to my conversation with Jessica right now. Well, Jessica, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. I appreciate your time. I've really been looking forward to this. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. A number of years ago, you were on a routine field mission in Somalia as an education advisor. So can you tell us what got you to Somalia and what you were doing and what your life was like out in back in the U.S. outside of um, doing this kind of work? Sure. Um, so I'm a teacher by profession. And when I was finishing up my uh, uh, college degree, you know, you do a student teaching a stint. And I decided to pick the furthest place possible. And I found a... Your parents a, must have been thrilled. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think, yeah, it's a whole other story. But I, you know, I, I was born and bred to explore and to be adventurous, I think. And um, so they weren't necessarily surprised at all. Um, but my school had never had anybody, my college had never had anybody do their student teaching in Africa before. And I was like, well, somebody's got to be first. Yeah. So I found a school, an international school in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, the Rosalind Academy that did did stuff like this and got the whole thing set up actually started this international teaching uh student teaching program for my school is, and it, still, is it still going yeah yeah i believe and so what's the name yeah and um, well the the school is the university of valley forge um and so but now i think it's a lot easier to get like these international student teaching positions and stuff because the world is just like so much more accessible in those ways than it was like years ago when I was in college. <laughs> um, so I know. I hear you. Uh, I hear you. Um, yeah. So I, they offered me a job when I was done with my student teaching and I was super excited to come back. And yeah, I loved living in East Afri Africa. I loved Kenya so much. Um, the kids that I worked with were super cool. They were from all over the world and there were lots of, as uh, service has always been such a big part of um, who I am and why I feel like I'm here on this planet. Yeah. And so I, there were lots of opportunities for service in ways that felt authentic um, to me. And so, uh, of course, uh, I'm out for dinner and having fun with some friends one Saturday night. And I meet this cute guy and he's from Sweden and I'd never actually like met anybody from Sweden. And I was like, well, this is kind of cool. And, and it turns out he was a terrible dancer, uh, but he, he was a great conversationalist. So we, we went and 
had a glass of wine and we've been talking for 15 years. And so Eric and I got married about a year and a half after we met. And he um, is the equivalent of a human rights lawyer at the time. So he was working in Somalia and Zimbabwe, but he was based in Nairobi. Um, And after we got married, it was really hard to have a long distance marriage. So I quit my teaching job and moved up to Hargeisa, Somaliland to be with him and start our lives together. And um, it was really fun, but I didn't have a job. And so, you know, I felt like you didn't, you didn't go back to teaching then. No, I, I mean, I did because teachers are once a teacher, always a teacher. Like you can't not teach I'm finding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I didn't have like an actual job that paid. I was just up there as his spouse, which was also kind of like, hard for me to wrap my brain around, you know, like I'd quit my job, I'd left my life and here I am like for this man. So I was like, I need to carve out my own life here. And Hargeisa Mm -hmm. is not an easy place to do that. You know, there's, it's just like the movement is restricted at the time it was anyway. And, um, you know, I had to go with armed guards to the gas station and mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. And um, but I ended up. Was there a lot of violence uh, there at the time? No, not so much in Hargeisa. I mean, there were um, always like there was like this low level hum of threat um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you're working in places that are like declaring themselves as autonomous countries, but they're not really. They still belong to the greater country of Somalia, Southern Somalia, it was unsafe. Was there a lot of sort of um, inter-country fighting, tribal fighting, if you will, between factions? I would call them conflicts for sure. There were, you know, um, a country like Somalia is very much resided over um, by clans and they have a clan mentality, Mm -hmm. um, which is so like, I'll, I'll speed it up a little bit here. Started doing some like just English language training to refugees living on our compound. And then that rolled into where I eventually started working as an education advisor for an international NGO, the Danish Demining Group. And they were just that. They were a demining company and they worked in countries all over the world that were post-Civil War, but still had um, like leftover explosives and landmines and things that were dangerous to the community. So they would go in and they would actually clear the mines and they would mm-hmm. clear the explosives, uh, get rid of them so that they weren't a danger to the communities anymore. Um, but there was a whole educational component around that. So I did like armed violence reduction and community safety and conflict management. And it was just like so awesome. I traveled all over East Africa. I managed all these programs for the organization and got to use my skill set, my creativity. Were people receptive to you? I mean, talking about conflict management and things, mm-hmm. seems that if they were pretty motivated because of a dedication to a certain lifestyle of people, I would think that in many ways, working to try to transform behavior and thinking would be hard. But you you found the opposite? Well, I'm not going to say it was easy, mm-hmm. but I think just because it's hard doesn't mean you can't like go out and try to to challenge and, and change mindsets. And, you know, you have to go in realizing that you're not from here, like you're an expat, like you don't belong here 
per se. So you go in with a certain level of respect and, and, and it's really about like education and about building infrastructure. And that's the way these countries are going to continue to develop and, and be safer for the people that the country actually belongs to. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, the development world has changed so much in 10 years and I'm no longer a part of it and working in that regard. My husband still does. And so, but uh, I think that at the end of the day, every mother wants her child to be safe and to grow up in an environment that feels secure and that where there's resources available, healthcare, water, food. Yeah. Mothers are mothers and mothers. Moms in Somalia wanted exactly what we want. You know, they, they 100%. Were, they, we're all they human. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you in Somalia total? total amount of time you and your husband um so i lived up in hargesa for about two and a half years okay. my husband had been there much longer and so part of my job with the with ddg what meant that i had to travel around so i went to south sudan and uh, northern uganda and i was called upon to do um a staff training where we you know, worked with our local staff who then went out into the villages to do the actual implementation of the programming. Mm -hmm. I'm down in Southern Somalia and Galkayo, which was definitely not as safe as the Hargeisa where I lived. Like if you look, if you think of like the number seven, mm -hmm. uh, Somalia is kind of shaped like a seven. So I lived up in the top left hand corner and I was, I had to go down to like the bottom of the seven. Right. Um, and that is like closer to the things that you hear in the news headlines, right? Like that's closer to Mogadishu. That's closer to, um, like terrorist activity, clan conflict and stuff like that. So I was nervous about going, I canceled the training two times before. Um, but my colleague, a gentleman named Paul, who is a Danish, uh, guy who, um, was he was managing the program down there. He was like, look, this is our job. You know what you signed up for. If you don't want to come down here, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to report you to your supervisor. And I felt like I was in danger of losing my job, mm -hmm. um, which scared me because I'd worked really hard for this job. I loved my job. I loved my life. Right. And I felt bullied essentially like get down here or else. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I'm like a school teacher from Ohio. Like, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen to me? Like, oh, I'm just yeah. like, I'm invincible, yeah. right? Like yeah. I, I, so you went. I, I, yeah. So I went and I was there for three days. Uh, okay. We had a training in, in the Northern office for two days. And then in the Southern office, which is where I was particularly concerned about, because if something's going to happen, it's usually going to happen when you're in transit. And we had to move from one convoy of vehicles to another convoy and then get to another office. So we'd be on the road for about half an hour. We got there, do the training on the third day, no problem, all good. Um, and around three o'clock in the afternoon, it's time to like head back to the north office and I'm I'm heading out the next morning. So I'm like feeling so much relief. Like I did like it all good. We're ready to go. Yeah. Like let's go back to the guest house, have some dinner pack up our stuff and be on our way. Um, and then we're driving through, we're in a convoy of three land cruisers. So we've got armed guards in the front. Paul and I are in the middle with a driver and our security advisor. And then we have armed guards in the back land cruiser and we drive for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then we're cut off by another land cruiser that splashes mud up all over our windows and our windshield. And I'm like sitting there thinking like, what a jerk who drives like that? 
And then um, I hear the crack of the butt of an AK-47 on the car hood. And I'm like, oh boy, something bad is happening. Um, But I can't see out the windows because they're covered in mud. And then I just hear all of these men start screaming and shouting, like very angry. The door is pulled open. The security advisor is pulled out. A guy with an AK-47 gets into the car, puts it to my head, screams at the driver to start driving. And then we just take off through town. Did Um, you think we were going to die? Oh, hundred percent. Like not like not in that moment. I was just like I I my mind couldn't really even function. It was just thinking like two things. One, this is so bad. This is so bad. Like that just kept going over and over in my mind. This is so bad. This is so bad. This is so bad. Whatever this is is so bad. I have no frame of reference for it. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that kept going through my mind was that even if they like just take all my money. They take my computer and my phone and they kick me out and leave me on the side of the road and let me walk back to town. Everything I know about my life is different now. Yeah. Like it's all changed from this moment. In a moment. Yeah. In a snap. Mm -hmm. Everything I knew about myself was going to change and, and be challenged and be tested in a way that like you only see in movies Mm-hmm. You know, and so that just started what I would call 93 days in hell, essentially. So they t- they took off with you in the car. Mm-hmm. And I assume um, the bully was gone, went somewhere else. The guy that made you go. He down was there. there. He was there. He was in the front of the vehicle. He was there. We were taken together. And where'd they take you? Uh, they just took us out to a field like hours and hours from town. And we were forced out of the vehicle in the middle of the night and to march. We thought we were in like a death march. We thought we were marching to our own execution. Um, But they just really wanted to scare us and then told us to lay down in the dirt and go to sleep, which I did. I passed out because it's really interesting how your mind will like shut down because it knows it needs to go into preservation mode. Right. Um, But I woke up the next morning and I was just like, what is happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, you know, we kept asking to talk to our family. Can we call our organization? Um, nothing, nothing, nothing for like about two weeks. We, we just lived outside. Could you understand what they were saying to you? No. I mean, there were, there was one guy who was the head of the militia. He called himself Abdi. Um, he spoke decent English, um, but it was very like, I don't know. It was very childish like the way he would talk to us, you know, not just in terms of like his elementary English, but cognitively, like mm-hmm. there was something, I think there was mental illness or something mm-hmm. going on there. Um, so, and you just never knew, like, if anything they were saying was true, like you're always getting different answers or they get mad and just throw their guns in your face. And um, it was, it was very precarious trying to figure out how to communicate. So they put you in a car and take you somewhere else after you were slept in the dirt? Um, We stayed in that camp for probably a week. And then we would be put in the car and driven around. Then we'd get out and we'd sleep in a... And when I say camp, I'm saying sleep outside on the ground or on a mat. Were there other people there? Uh, Guards. There were no other hostages. We were the only two um, hostages or foreigners we saw um, actually we did, I, I forgot about that, like a, probably 40 or 50 days in, we saw somebody with light skin walk across mm-hmm. 
the field. And I was like, what is that? Who is that? And the story was that he was a Spanish, he was a Spanish sailor. Cause what would be happen most of the time with these kidnappings, cause Somalia it's, you know, um, it, there's a, a coastline. So it's the Indian ocean is the border on, on the east side of Somalia. And so there would be big, huge cargo ships and things that would come through to the port and they would get nabbed by pirates mm-hmm. essentially. So if you know, like Captain Phillips, like if you ever saw that movie, like that happened the year before my kidnapping and that was exactly what would happen. And, and it became so difficult for them to continue kidnapping, like doing these kidnappings and taking these ships hostages, they moved to land mm-hmm. and then they would start taking aid workers off the land. Um, but the Spanish sailor had been on a ship that had been taken and no one, his government didn't care about him. His employer didn't care about him. His family didn't have any money. So he just became Somali and took a, a wife and mm-hmm. just assimilated to life. Wow. So while, so you were in that camp, how long you said 40 some days? I don't, you know, we'd moved, I bet we moved 50 or 60 times. We were never in one place for very long. Okay. But you were always with the same guards. They rotated. So there are about 20 that rotated. Okay. How did they, how did they, well, you were kidnapped, but how did they treat you in general while you were with them? It just depended on who was guarding us at the time. Some of them were awful. And they were threatening and mean. Would they beat you? Or- they would hit me, sure. Push me, scream at me, get my face with guns, you know, that kind of thing. Tell me they're going to sell me to Al-Shabaab. Tell me they're going to cut my head off, you know, stuff like that. Um, I think overall in terms of like hostage treatment, it wasn't awful. Um, but, you know, we were starved. We, we didn't have clean water a lot of times. There were no facilities. Like, there was no bathroom. Like, I'm just living outside in the dirt for weeks into months. I'm the only woman. Mm. Never saw another woman. So, mm-hmm. of course, I'm afraid. Like, first, I'm afraid I'm going to die. Second, I'm afraid I'm going to be assaulted, mm-hmm. um, which by some miracle I never was. Mm-hmm. Did you feel, well, I guess it's a dumb question, terror every moment or was there point no yeah tell us sort of emotionally what happened I think like the first couple of weeks you're just trying to like get your bearings and you're in fight or flight the whole time you know like my heart was just racing I was having a hard time sleeping for many reasons some of those were external and then you kind of you go it's kind of like the stages of grief right like denial, anger, uh, and I don't remember what the stages are. But then finally, you know, you begin to accept that this is this is what your life is right now, even if it is completely bizarre and you never in a million years could have ever seen something like this coming. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what it is. And I also felt very strongly that my family, I had a responsibility to come back to my family. Uh, you know, I'd lost my mom the year before, really suddenly. And it was such a tragedy for my family. And I just thought I can't, I can't leave them too. You know, like I got to do everything I can to survive. And so it's really like a mindset Mm -hmm. struggle. Right. And in some ways I've always thought like, especially like post kidnapping when I have been in the space of what I would call surviving survival. Um, that almost felt like the easy part because, 
because your only job is to survive. Right. You don't have to make any decisions. You mm -hmm. just have to keep breathing and you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You just have to stay alive. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I got to the point where I could actually find some peace mm -hmm. throughout my day. Um, I'm a daydreamer. That's just like how I am. I'm a four on the Enneagram. Yeah. So I could like spend hours alone in my mind mm -hmm. thinking about what had, you know, all the things that had ever happened to me or all the relationships I'd had, friendships and that conversation I had with my mom. I did this whole, I spent weeks doing a whole life review. And then, mm -hmm. then I spent weeks thinking about what I was going to do when I got out and made all these plans. And I got really, really detailed. And um, yeah, it was interesting. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Jessica. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. Today, my guest is Jessica Buchanan. Clearly, you did get out and you were rescued by Navy SEALs, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. I bet you were never so happy to see Americans in your life, were you? <laughs> I was just happy to see anybody who didn't want to hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't matter that they were American, but yeah. it was I'm uh, it was quite the production. Mm -hmm. Um I had no idea that something like that was gonna happen. Um mm -hmm. the, it never was on my radar. It was never a thought in my mind that a military intervention was possible. I just figured we were gonna have to wait it out until ransom was paid, which by the way, started out at $45 million. Oh, um, wow. So we were gonna sit there for a very long time. And so, yeah, like that was, that was a good, good day. Yeah. So they rescued you and you reunited with your husband, I assume. And then when did you come back to the States? So I reunited with my husband a couple days after because um, I participated in the Department of Defense's hostage reintegration program. And mm -hmm. so it was very, there was a protocol we had to follow. It was very regimented. Mm -hmm. um, and then we, uh, interestingly enough, um, I got pregnant. Uh, two weeks after the rescue. And mm -hmm. so that kind of threw me for a loop in terms of like, what do I do now? So I actually, we went back to Kenya because that had always been home, right? Mm -hmm. For me, for us together, especially. And I knew I wanted to have my, my baby there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, you know, had him almost a year to the day later from the kidnapping and we stayed for about six months. What was it like being pregnant in Kenya? What was your medical care like? Oh, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. Like Nairobi is super westernized. I mean, for me, because right, I'm like an expat with money and resources and means. Um, so you went from being a hostage to mm -hmm. a year later, having this beautiful baby experiencing probably the elation that mothers feel when a baby is born, that must have been really hard for you to handle those extreme emotions, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, if I'm going to be really honest, I would not say, I mean, yes, there was part of me that was elated, but there's part of me that was really scared. You know, mm -hmm. I had postpartum uh, depression. I had post-traumatic stress disorder. Like those are really hard things to navigate. Yeah. in and of themselves, let alone when you're a first time mother. Yeah. Um, so those were some really, I would say that period in my life between my mom dying and then my son being born and like a year after that, those were, man, I have never worked so hard 
to like survive (laughs) in my entire life. There are a lot of mothers out there who really struggle after their kids are born with postpartum depression. Um, Many women who've had sexual abuse Mm. really struggle after a baby's born, particularly if it's a boy. It triggers a lot of things in you. So can you talk to the mothers out there who are struggling emotionally after a baby's born for whatever reason, you know, tips that you can give them, you know, help and hanging on or whatever, what, mm-hmm. what you did. I mean, you have to like talk to somebody, you have to find somebody that you trust, either your partner or your doctor or your therapist do not suffer in silence. Yeah. And if you need to take medication to help you get through that, that is okay. Yep. And I also just want you to know that this doesn't, it's not going to last forever. Like Mm -hmm. it's so easy when you're in the depths of pain and confusion and you're sleep deprived and you got this little child that you don't know if you can like keep them alive or not. Like it's so scary. I don't know. Like I have stood my ground against armed pirates and I don't think anything brought me to my knees as much as like becoming a mother did. Like Find somebody to talk to. There is help. There are lots of modalities and just it's it's okay. Yeah. You can't be afraid to say something because no. there's so many people that will help you. Yes. And you're not alone, you know, in, in feeling that way. So jump ahead now. You have um, two children. Mm-hmm. And how, what's the age difference between your kids? Um, about... I guess two years, like 25 months. So I got pregnant with my daughter. Yeah. You know, Augie was about uh, 16 months old when I found out I was pregnant with my second. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a whole journey in and of itself as well. But it was, um, I've always looked at that time as more redeeming because I got to have um, a more normal pregnancy. And um, I fought tooth and nail because I thought I needed to have a natural birth. So I would also say, don't hold on to that. <laughs> it took me five days to have her <laughs> because I wouldn't, I wouldn't relent. So, you know, so when, did, so much. when did you finally come back to the States? We, we came back when Augie was about seven months old. So we, we came back in March of 2013. So talk to us about the motherhood journey for the next five years Um, struggles, difficulties, joys, and how you navigated all of that. Mm. So I look at um, motherhood. This is one, it's my, maybe my third book that I'm going to write. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm working on it. Um, I call motherhood um, my greatest pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it has been such a, so far it has been such a journey um, deserts and wilderness and mountaintops. And then you're back de- in the desert. It, nothing stays the same. Um, I'm right now in, I call these the golden years. I'm nine and seven is awesome. I love it so much because they're pretty independent mm-hmm. yet. They're, um, they haven't stopped loving me and they'll still cuddle with me. Um, and I think, you know, like trying to navigate motherhood is just, it's really hard. There's so much, it's really lonely. Like there's so much competition and yeah. it's just weird. 
And it really does. In some ways, the more friends you have, the harder it gets. And particularly now for mothers who are just starting out on this journey, I it would really mess with your head because Instagram to me is a show off zone. You know, it's like, look, look how great, you know, my kids look, look how happy I am. Look, you know, and you kind of look at them and think, gee whiz, that's not me. Mm-hmm. And so that does make you feel lonely. Um, did you have difficulty making friendships with other women when your kids were little or did you sort of stay isolated? Oh, yes. Yes and yes. Um, It was very hard for me to connect with other women because I was new to the U.S., essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd been out for almost a decade. Yeah. Uh, My husband is not from here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they want to know where you lived before. I live outside of Washington, D.C., so it's a very transient area. So, you know, you're on the playground pushing your kid in the swing and they want to know where you lived before you got or how long you've been here. Where did you live before? Oh, I lived in Africa. Oh, what were you doing in Africa? Oh, I I was an aid worker. Oh my gosh. Tell me about that. And then I would, you know, then somehow it would always come up and, or people would recognize me because they saw me on Dr. Phil or that, you know, and then I remember I finally made a friend that I really connected with and we were leaving like a baby story hour at the local bookstore. And she said, I Googled you. And I was like, oh yeah. And she was just like, oh my God. And I looked at her and I said, I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like people thought they felt uncomfortable around me. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what to say, or they thought, how could she like have gone through something like that and be a normal mom? Right. Right. And so, and I think a lot of that was probably self-imposed, but I think some of it was real too. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, then I just like cut myself off, Mm -hmm. like at the preschool drop off. I just was like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't worth my Mm -hmm. investment. And it was lonely for a really long time. So how long did you stay cut off from other mothers? Because not only does that make you I, um, lonely as a woman, it makes you lonely as a mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of the survival um, technique in those early years is is having other mothers share their their stories with you to say, okay, yeah, you didn't sleep for a year. Oh, good. You're mm-hmm. alive. I'm not sleeping for a year. So when were you able to sort of join in with other mothers and share parenthood experiences? So I really gravitate toward women who are older than me. Um, Mm -hmm. I think part of that has to do with the fact that my mom's not here anymore. And also because I've been through so much. So I have, I'm such an old soul, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started connecting and investing in other friendships with women who not just because their their kids were friends with my kids. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's probably one of the smartest things I've ever done is mm-hmm. just made friends because I connected with them, whether mm-hmm. they had kids, my kids ages, whether they had kids at all. Like I have friends with no kids. I have friends with kids in college. I have friends who are pregnant. Like mm-hmm. it runs the gamut. And that has been such, um, that's when I really started to feel like less alone and less isolated. Um, it maybe I wasn't hanging out with them, you know, at from 10 to 12 before nap time. And maybe it was more a happy hour when my husband got home, yeah. but I, it was what fed me and what I needed. And I've learned so much from that. And I think that's a great point. And I think that mothers forget that, you know, when, when I, I did, when our kids are young, we feel like we need to 
sort of socialize the pe- with the people that we're naturally um, bumping into every day, which is usually mothers of kids our age. But mm-hmm. I've always been about diversity in friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, I, too, had older friends. I have friends um, in different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very important. Are you a strict or are you an easygoing mother or are you a pushover? Ha. Huh. I'm definitely not a pushover. I'm pretty strict. Um, I'm very firm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yell a lot. We don't yell a lot in our house because our kids know we mean business. Um, mm-hmm. But I would also say I'm I'm lenient in the sense that like, like I don't get all wrapped around the axle about my house being messy, yeah. you know, like stuff like that. Like I, I see these women like running around like crazy trying to clean the counters and the, you know, and the clutter does get on my nerves, but I'm not going to use that as a source of angst and anxiety for me so that I can't enjoy being with my family. Like, cause whatever I, and it was funny cause my very best friend who actually lives, we're like neighbors, essentially we grew, we've been friends since we were nine mm-hmm. and um, her mom comes back and forth a lot to, to be with her granddaughters. And she came over to my, to the house. It was several years ago. And I mean, like my kids were like three and one. My husband had been in Africa working for like three weeks. I think we had gotten through like the stomach flu. Like it was like not like dark days. Right. And my house was disgusting. And she, I, she came over and for like dinner or something. And I was like apologizing. I'm like, I'm so sorry. My house is just so gross, whatever. And she looked at me and she said, you know, when, like before you know it, you're going to have all the time in the world to clean. Mm. That is not your priority right now. And that really freed me up, you know, because I was just like, you're absolutely right. I'm not going to waste this time that I have with my kids worrying about, I don't, you know, the spot on the rug or whatever. Who cares? I tell my kids, you know, when they come home and there's a mess after they leave. First of all, messes have never bothered me because I, I'm a craft junkie with my grandkids mm-hmm. and kids. And that always requires making a mess. But I always say, you know, there's always time to clean and there's time to sleep. I had that epiphany when my aunt came to visit or kids were little and I was running around cleaning the kitchen. I wanted to look nice for her and the mm-hmm. kids were there. And she stopped me dead in my tracks and she patted the side of the couch right next to where she was sitting. And she said, come sit with me. I'm going to be gone in a couple of days and I just want to be with you. Mm-hmm. And that was such a pivotal moment in my life because I realized she didn't care about the house. She wanted to be with me. Mm-hmm. And I think that as mothers, we need to communicate that to each other. And I think the way we do that is don't comment on somebody's house. Don't don't say, oh, it looks so nice or it's so clean. Don't do that. Just say, mm-hmm. you know, how are you? And look at look at the person and the mother, because I think one of the traps that mothers get into is we feel like we need to sort of be on this perfectionist treadmill and it's just all a lie. We only have a couple minutes left, Jessica. I could talk to you forever. I'd love to know what your kids are doing now. But to the mothers out there, you know, we've got a lot of single moms. We've Mm -hmm. got a lot of young moms. We've got grandparents. Um, What are the most important parenting advice that you would like to tell women that would... um, help them get through those early parenting years? Mm, I think it's all going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like we, 
feel like we're always like we feel like we're behind as soon as they like come out into the world and start breathing their own air like we're true (laughs) we're constantly like tracking and are they keeping up and you know as long as they know that they are safe Mm -hmm. they are loved and they are accepted that's going to do so much more for them than the, you know, expensive preschool that you're trying to get into or the soccer club that you're trying to get into or the AAP program or, you know, whatever, like it's all going to be okay. And it really is true. It goes so fast, Mm -hmm. so fast. And this is it. This is all we get with them. This is it. And kids are going to land where they're supposed to land. I really believe 100%. that. 100%. Kids end up being who they are. And we think in the moment that we are so instrumental in making them this and shaping that. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. However, they are who they are. And we mm-hmm. have to embrace them. And we have to sort of tweak them this way and tweak them that way. But, but um but it is such a joy and not to let the joy um, be robbed from you. Yes. My guest has been Jessica Buchanan. I am so grateful that you came. I would love to hear more about your perspective as a mom and particularly with older kids. We're running out of time, but it would be wonderful if you came back and taught um, us all how to be really good moms and, uh, and even grandparents. So thanks for joining me, Jessica. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I really want to thank my guest, Jessica Buchanan, for joining me on the show today. Her story is so hard to hear, and yet it reminds us of the faithfulness of God. And I really want you to ponder Psalm 138, verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You'll stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Friends, we need to remember that when life is getting hard. You can follow Jessica on her Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Jessica Buchanan in your internet browser. And remember, friends, check out my brand new Strong Father, Strong Daughters Masterclass. It's available only on meekerparenting.com strong and go to pureflix.com and look for the trailer for the brand new movie, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. I really think you're going to love it. So until next time, parents, always remember, great kids are raised, not born.